Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. This is day number four. Who's counting? <laughs> day number four. For me, this is day 18. On a 20-day teaching retreat. And um, it's interesting, I felt, over the last couple of weeks, almost three weeks of teaching, um, how much the season relates to the teaching. So sometimes when um, we're sharing this practice with others, the first part we share are all the colorful elements, the flowers and the bees and um, the full belly and cheeks of the squirrel before the aponic season, hibernation season. And then as the teaching continues, what starts to happen is um, the colorful, charismatic parts start to fall away. <laughs> and um, what's left are the stems of the teaching, the threads, the bare parts. This is the danger of studying with teachers that are charismatic. There's one around here somewhere is uh, we can get excited about the colorful parts and then when the difficult times arise um, we realize we still have to actually do the practice. <laughs> and that's the problem with going to too many Dharma talks and never practicing. <laughs> uh, we keep learning about the practice but we actually have to have a practice underneath all that to ground um, what we're studying and uh, last night I went to on when I was getting ready to go to sleep I kept laughing thinking about our afternoon together <laughs> what a nice afternoon we had <laughs> yesterday did anybody feel that way? Oh, yeah. yeah so as soon as you get the exercise uh oh <laughs> did anybody feel that? <laughs> and then what happens as you just let the self fall away is um, some innate joy arises even in the midst of nervousness we're always going to be nervous hopefully if we have healthy personas we're going to be a bit nervous sometimes expressing ourselves 
and um, then inside that nervousness, there's mm-hmm. a little bit of joy. Mm-hmm. And um, it made me think of a story um, that you find in the Hindu tradition, also in the Chinese Chen tradition, about uh, the um, gods and the demons who had a fight. They had a war. And um, at the end of the war, the demons uh, took off to go hide somewhere. And demons are like titans, and they can hide anywhere. So you can hide, like, in the corner of the eye of a moth, you know. So you could, you could, be, you could go inside an atom and hide in there, so nobody would find you. But at the end of this war, all of the demons went and they hid inside the stems or the threads or the fibers of lotuses. So they went inside the threads and they hid there. And um, part of the, the teaching inside the story is a question, which is, why did they hide in the lotus leaves or in the lotus stems when they could have hid, you know, in somewhere much more obscure. It's an interesting thing to contemplate. Why hide, if you're a demon, or if you have demons, why hide in the lotus stems? Has anybody here ever spent time looking at lotuses? We can do this in Ontario. Yeah. Have you ever spent time in a canoe, canoeing through a pond just covered in lotuses. <coughs> and the interesting thing about the lotus, and you probably know this about the lotus, is it gets its nutrients by cleaning the mud and cleaning the algae through its stem. And then the flower that appears certain times of the year uh, is considered pure. Taizan Nozumi Roshi used to say, um, Fish can't survive in water that's too pure. Even fish can't survive in water that's too pure. Mm-hmm. It's happened sometimes in our uh, spiritual practice. Is sometimes the ego gets this idea that we should be pure. Mm-hmm. It happens in diet practice also. You become too obsessed with your diet, and all you can think about is yourself. Has anybody ever had a diet like that? So, you know, it's like you you eat a piece of chocolate and you're like visualizing the demons in your (laughs) belly, you know. Uh, Or you have like a piece of dairy and you can just see the cow face, you know. And then that way of perceiving actually affects what the food does inside of your body, right? And then you spend your whole day just thinking about yourself, you know, except you're being nonviolent. Well... (laughs) <laughs> it depends on your perception um, and uh, so in a way to be careful about our ideas of purity water that's too pure has no fish in it you see and the interesting about the demons in the lotus thread is that um, they're transforming the quality of the lotus flower right so what they're doing inside the stem of the lotus is they're transforming the impurity into purity. 
But you never get rid of the impurity because the water is always going to have some level of impurity in it. And so, in a way, there's no um, static element in the lotus flower. There's this stem that's constantly building, rebuilding, just like the human body, right? Your body's always breaking down and rebuilding itself. We were talking about this the other day in terms of healthy systems. And so this is what happens on the Thursday of the five-day workshop. Is that little parts of the viewpoint of the body, of our knowledge, start to break down. You'll see. It starts to happen. And, um, and then the mind searches for a way to put it all back together by creating an idea this is what's happening for me in the week. You see? So see if it's possible to just drop the desire to create an overarching story about what your week has been like <coughs> or how it's going. Have you noticed this tendency? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you come in in the morning with a story. This is the best workshop ever. <laughs> I'm signing up for the one in the spring. <laughs> you know. Or, you know, I'm checking out now, joining the monastery. Or, I've had it after this week, Friday, I'm done with yoga. (laughs) I remember this at my bar mitzvah. I remember going up to the bima to do my portion and thinking on the way up, as soon as this is done, I am never going to Hebrew school ever again. (laughs) And... um, uh, my mom said to me the day after my bar mitzvah, you've become anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> because I announced at my bar mitzvah that I was not going to date Jewish people anymore. <laughs> and I stuck to that. <laughs> so, open. Okay. So watch where the mind is going for a viewpoint. Maybe you woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning this morning and now you're a little bit tired and how am I going to make it through the day and right away you start creating the overarching viewpoint and then you're going to fit your day into this viewpoint I'm sure it's only happening to a couple of you Um, wonderful teacher Hakwin tells the story of a woman who is a prostitute and she goes to Hakwin um, to really study deeply says I really want to enter the way by getting to know this practice and Hakwin says you can't um, join you can't join and do this practice in a formal way because you're busy. You're trying to make a living, trying to support a family um, in your job. You can imagine the job of a prostitute who's been doing it for a couple of decades. And so she says, well, then what shall I do? How can I really practice? And he says to her, "Um, do your practice in your job. Do your practice in your job. Could you do this? Do you divide your life so that there are some things that are spiritual and there are some things that you don't include in your practice? 
Are there some things that, you know, oh, can't let that out, because that's, that's not yogic. And Hakuin is saying this to this woman, you don't need to join. If you really want to do this practice, um, if you really want to do this practice, do this practice right in the heart of your work. Do this practice right in the heart of your work. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine this? Okay. So we have this idea from a dualistic perspective. Oh, what is right livelihood? And Hakuin is saying, like, forget it. Forget it. This is the work you're doing. Do the practice in your work. Do the practice in your work. So that you don't say, on this rectangle, this is my yoga practice. Or on this, in this wider rectangle with green walls, this is our practice. As soon as we leave here, it's not your practice. Hopefully in a week, practicing together, this is your sangha. And hopefully when you leave here, you'll realize that now you'll always have community with you when you practice. And a practice. What tends to happen sometimes is the mind, especially if there are feelings in your life of inadequacy, which apparently happens sometimes to some people, that we're always like looking for the next thing to do. I like to label this in order to mind. You know, I'm going to do this in order to get that. And um, that tends to reinforce inadequacy because it's not the desire to learn something or to um, explore something new. It's often just based on an idea that what I am now is not enough. You know? And it's funny because some of the people that I know, you know, close friends, um, who I think are the most yogic people I know, um, don't see it. You know? I have a friend, she has no money, has never had any money. You know? She lives so simply, tiny little apartment, she goes from job to job to job, doesn't have much, and... Uh, when I, when I talk with her and trust her and see how she lives her life, I think this is the most yogic person that I know. But she doesn't see it because she's frustrated. She doesn't have the money and she interprets it like it's this, you know, childhood pattern and, you know. But on the outside, I think this is an ethical life. So for you to recognize maybe where you do that with yourself, especially on the fourth day, where we start to realize, oh, there's all this stuff to learn. Or like now, oh my God, I have to start studying Iyengar yoga now? <laughs> so I can know everything Susan knows. And then Susan's thinking the same thing in relationship with her teacher. Oh, I have to like get my level three Iyengar training now. Or maybe she's not. I don't know. So just to sometimes look into your motivation for continuity in the practice and to recognize where you already have everything you need. Nothing's missing. You're a Buddha. Nothing's missing. What about um, people creating that separation for you? Yeah. What you're doing isn't part of that yoga. 
One of the things we've tried to do in this place, which we for the first few years didn't give a name to, now we call it center of gravity, whatever, who knows what that is, I don't know. But we've never made membership cards. So that we have a little red box, people put their money in. We've never gone computerized. Catherine and I were talking about this. Um, Part of that is just to try this experiment in a way that's very, very loose to encourage independent practice. Because I think that sometimes the form, people start to get addicted to the form and uh, then become a bit obsessed about all of the detail around the ritual. So you need a little bit of ritual. You need some form. Like if we didn't have the greeters in the morning and the bell, the week would get very sloppy. Okay, so we have just enough ritual that you can refine your attention. So when you walk into this room, we're pretending that the room is special. And because of that specialness or sacredness, we're refining the attention. And hopefully, though, you can see through the ritual. Like, it's just a ritual, you know, we could do anything. But we're doing that. And we're doing it in as clear a way as possible. And just enough ritual to create some formality so you can study your mind. You see, if you didn't have any ritual, you'd come and throw your bag down, take off your shirt, throw it over. You know, I'm not exaggerating. You should see what happens sometimes. You know. Um, just enough ritual that you can really work uh, form emptiness form formlessness enough form that you can see through it and I think a really good system has built into it a way that you can critique the form you see Um, but what tends to happen is the person in in the front of the room or the person at the center of the center has to keep their job, right? So they create a kind of linear brand of yoga so that there are certain levels you'll fulfill so that the people will keep coming and you can track them. And uh, I think people, especially who suffer from inadequacy, love that. (laughs) Because then you get like the degree here, the degree there, the degree there. And... um, So, how can you have a practice where people can really uh, drop in to the practice, where you're giving them some form, some technique, but you're encouraging independent study? And uh, it's hard to do. And I think that it comes with a responsibility, I feel this personally, that you have to make sure the practice works. So that you're not just, you know, getting too loose that people can make up their own version of the practice. But at the same time, there's room for the practice to morph in creative ways in different people. So my personal feeling is you can't critique the form until you really know the form. That's why it's so nice to study classical sequences of yoga postures. We all want to just, you know, improvise. 
But if you really start to know the classical vinyasa patterns, the breathing patterns that support them, then you understand, oh, that's why this pose comes before that pose. Oh, and then you start to learn um, the underlying thread or the pattern and how certain poses are designed to create certain effects in the students. And you see that it starts to happen because you know that that's happened in your own practice. So like in Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga, the primary series is an aponic series. Tons of forward bends. It's all about the earth element. Very, very, very grounding. People who are uh, flighty, uh, new age, uh, heart-centered, they hate the primary series. Forward bend, forward bend, forward bend. Just, you know? People who are depressed, grounded, down, in, they love the primary series. Second series, called Nadi Shodna, nerve purification, is the opposite. It's very pranic. Backbend, I think there's like, what, nine backbends at the beginning of the second series? Um, people who are depressed, who have this kind of posture, they hate second series. So the idea of that, and if you look at Iyengar Yoga, it's pretty much the same sequence, although he's been changing it lately, where first you get people really, really grounded, and then relentless backbending. Yeah. And then the third series, arm balances. Fourth series, you barely touch the floor <laughs> in the practice. If you ever see fourth series. And then, um, but then what happens is. Um, you can get caught in the technique. So then they start inventing more and more series uh, to create franchises. So you can create a brand. Ashtanga, Vinyasa Yoga, Iyengar Yoga. These brands are like less than four, four decades old. Five decades old. You know, if you look back at full literature, there's no such thing as sun salutations. They're just prostrations. You watch them do it at the temple in the morning. Sun salutations are like a totally new invention. Grant, did you have your hand up? Uh, I guess the, the system being one that includes a mechanism for critiquing uh, the system. Yeah. Just wondering if you pick any more Well, I think a good example is that in the first. Um, chapter of the Yoga Sutra, even before Patanjali talks about the eight limbs or the five mental factors or the kleshas, the first thing he talks about is how to work with obstacles that arise in the practice. And the obstacles he lists are all the, the great ones. Laziness, feelings of inconsistency, um, um, uh, sickness. Um, what are they? Anybody remember all of Greed, sleepiness, you know, um, accumulation, you know. And, uh, and he says, you know, the first way to work with the obstacles that arise um, uh, is uh, friendliness. <coughs> friendliness. So anxiety arises, and like a really good asana system 
is going to give you anxiety. <laughs> and he says, when anxiety arises, you meet it with friendliness. Mm-hmm. Hey, friend, I know you so well. <laughs> it's been, well, it hasn't been that long. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen you since yesterday morning when I was riding my bicycle to yoga class. Um, feelings of inconsistency, how do you meet them? Friend. So, friendliness, um, karuna, which used to, I used to translate this as compassion. That's like the, what most people translate karuna as compassion. I don't really like that word anymore. Um, maybe it has to do with retiring from psychotherapy. <laughs> but I find that the word compassion actually kind of creates a little bit of dualism. Feeling like I'm going to be compassionate, like empathy. You know, there's nothing worse than being around someone who's trying to be empathic. <laughs> it's the worst feeling. Somebody who's like, so if you have a friend who is in psychotherapy training, like give it two years before you hang out with them. <laughs> every time you talk to them, they're like, or people who just finished like, or your friends who finished like a weekend with Sharon Salzberg, you know, give them a couple weeks before you hang out with them. <laughs> Because it's like they're not present. They're like just trying to create meta. It's the worst. Um, So I like to translate karuna as love. Love. Love in a very impersonal sense, which is just what arises when the self is quiet. Does that make sense? And if you don't feel that on a consistent basis, just tattoo it <laughs> right across <laughs> the <laughs> Oh, you have that too. <laughs> very, very popular in this room. <laughs> Did you see this shirt? No. Do you want to turn around? And I'll demonstrate. <laughs> 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 so in other words Grant another way of of speaking about this is like to understand that the practice doesn't really have an end point just like a pose doesn't have an end point so it feels a little bit like trikonasana has an end and the end is the image you saw of Rodney Yee you know uh, on the cover of his, one of his trillion yoga videos. You know? And it's like, if I just get that, ah, okay, I've done it. So I can tell you that you can be just as unhappy in first series as you can be in third series. Because in third series, there's almost someone doing fourth series. You know? And um, so you're like, oh, if I, when I just get my feet behind my head. So then one day, you get your feet behind your head. It's amazing. And then your teacher comes over and says, okay, now lift up into a handstand. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then you lift up into a handstand, and then two years later the teacher says, okay, now in the handstand, tuck in so your knees can come right into your underarms. So you can do that, balance there. And then the teacher says, okay, now lift up again. Release, 
and jump back into vinyasa. <laughs> it's like, so there's no end point, you see. That's just the mind creating an end point. So to be weary of systems where the teacher interprets the system in a linear, materialistic kind of way. First of all, your body's aging. Don't tell anybody. Your body is aging, and so the, the practice is always going to be changing. And uh, later on today and tomorrow, we're going to be focusing for the last couple of days on what Hatha Yoga actually is, talking about bandhas and drishti and so on. Um, to understand what it is we're tuning into in the yoga postures, so that we don't think that the, post- that the, the practice deepens by just adding more and more and more postures. doesn't make sense. Certainly, there are therapeutic benefits of refining the yoga poses. But most of you in this room know a lot of poses. Okay? So one of the things I like to do in these intensives, you might have noticed this, is not to introduce too many new poses. And really to take what you know already and go deeper into it, rather than adding too many more new poses. Tuesday evenings, we add new poses. But in these workshops, I find... Um, especially when I travel to different cities, that people come really wanting to learn new poses. And so I don't teach any new poses. <laughs> I'm so frustrated. But then hopefully we can start to tune into what we know already. You know, I got this job once, uh, teaching for uh, a year at the Toronto Dance Theatre to the, to the company there, uh, twice a week. It was the hardest yoga teaching job I ever had. Because everybody there, when you teach the dancers, Monica, you probably know this, um, they just copy steps. Okay? The first thing we do is we switched rooms and we went into the only room they had that didn't have mirrors. Okay? And what we would do is just work really slowly trying to understand bandhas, internal diaphragms, trying to feel this action. It was so hard for people. In fact, a couple of the men quit they stopped coming because they weren't good at it. You see? Because there's a tendency sometimes in these movements in the body, especially if you practice with mirrors, a couple of you, um, to just take in the, the outer aspect of the postures, overstretching hamstrings, just staying on the, in the anatomical level, and not being able to feel these internal flows. And uh, the people who can usually feel the internal flow the best are really stiff people because uh, they don't have to do very much to feel anything. So it's like flexible people, you have to put their feet behind their head. A stiff person does the foot behind the head pattern like this. Okay? And they realize very quickly that they have to really start to work with the mind to enter into the depth of the pose. Because of their genetic code, they're not going to be putting their foot behind their head this year. Or this lifetime. (laughs) You see? (coughs) Does that make sense? Do you think that's possible? Yeah. Any other questions or comments before we... Five more minutes and then a bell might ring. Drives 
so much inside of me. And I thought that maybe at one point it might have been a, a bit of a mirror mm-hmm. that I was losing with myself. Yeah, sure. And <coughs> cool. Now to watch people say Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, we don't do teacher training here in this place. Um, but when I visit other teacher trainings, um, I was in Ottawa recently, and one of the one of the uh, the things we spent the weekend doing it was great. Such a fun time we had together. Is um, we went through the five koshas. Does everybody know the five koshas? Did you read Inner Tradition of Yoga? <laughs> Okay, five koshas are the five sheaths of the mind-body process. Five ways of looking at the mind-body process. First one is um, just anatomy. Second one is physiology, (coughs) circulation. So everything that's moving. Uh, And it goes down emotional, uh, mind-body, intellectual, mind-body. And the last one is just the feeling that everything is okay. Ananda uh, means this. <laughs> it's this mudra. <laughs> Not this. this one. Yeah. Um, maybe you felt this in your life. <laughs> Everything's okay. Um, one of the things we had the teacher training group do, which was really a fun exercise, is uh, you would go into a group of three, and you, you had three postures to teach. So let's say it was downward-facing dog, upward-facing dog, and um, tadasana. Okay, and um, you would. Oh, I never thought of tadasana as tada, tadasana. Have to check the etymology of that. Um, So what you would do is the first day you had to go around the group and teach the three postures only talking about the first kosha. That's the easy one, right? That's Iyengar yoga. Mm -hmm. So you just teach just the physical geometry in terms of anatomy. Just talk about bones, so on. (coughs) The second class, so this would be the afternoon of the first day, go back through the group, and you can only talk about the pose in terms of circulation. Nervous system, respiratory system, immune system, just what's moving. Next day, you can only talk about the pose in terms of the third kosha, so emotional life. It gets harder and harder. Fourth day, only what the mind is doing. Talk about those three poses, lead three people through it, two other people through it, and only talk about where to put your mind. So the way to do that is talk about gazing, talk about finishing the breath, so that the mind is part of the... Because we all know where to put the foot and the hand. But what do you do with your mind? Because most of you um, have had the experience where you can go through your whole sequence of poses and never be there for it. Yeah? So where do you put your mind? Fifth exercise was talk about the pose. Everything's okay. Nowhere to get to. Could you imagine that? Just talk about the pose in terms of Ananda. Nothing to do. 
this was people found this very challenging. Wonderful uh, teacher and friend, Mark Whitwell, um, who I got to know this summer, um, I, I thought that his teaching was, was some of the clearest in, on this subject, which is being able to teach asana in a way where people don't feel like they need to get anything. And you could see all the Iyengar and Ashtanga vinyasa <laughs> so frustrated in that class, you know, and not getting the message. So he'd lead you through a sequence, never tell you needed to really do anything. And, uh, oh, the tension in the room was wonderful. I loved it. Yeah, so much fun. Okay, so we'll see if we can explore this together throughout the day today. Nothing special to do. Give yourself a break.